0: Tonight's scripture reading is Ephesians four one through seven and eleven through sixteen. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager And in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. We are
1: continuing our short series on the family of God. And last week, Pastor Andrew talked about the theology Of the family. And tonight we want to look at the commitments of the family and get into some of the practical ways that we can live out this calling that you just heard from Ephesians 4 so that we can pursue uh, love. And uh, by doing so, that we can make an impact here in the city for the glory of God. Let's pray together and we'll dive right in. Jesus, we praise you for your kindness towards us. Jesus, thank you for the many gifts that you have given to us including this community, this worship service. And we pray that you would be honored. And even now, as we listen to your word, that the preaching of the word would be worship-pleasing unto you, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Football season is upon us, which means little to many of you, but to very few of us, it means a lot. I don't know if you have been following the Antonio Brown saga, but it caught my attention a while back. He had me at frozen feet. Literally frozen feet. It's not a metaphor. Now, for those of you uh, who don't follow the NFL, Antonio Brown is a four-time All-Pro wide receiver who used to play with, uh, with the Steelers. And uh, when he was traded to Oakland Raiders earlier this year he became the highest-paid receiver in the league. What a great offseason, right? New city, new team, new contract. What could go wrong? Helmet. I get it. I have my favorite pair of jeans, too, but it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. But for Antonio Brown, he threatened to retire and walk away from $30 million dollars Because he was not allowed to play in his preferred helmet. Suffice to say, Brown's behavior did more than make news headlines. It was a distraction to the team, and it divided the locker room. And uh, as of last week, he is with the New England Patriots, and so all is well. For now. Now, this story is is a reminder... That when you put yourself ahead of others, yourself before others, you make a mess. The Bible calls this sin. Why? Because God designed us to love him first and foremost. And to love our neighbors as we would love ourselves. And then to love ourselves. Now it does not mean that we love ourselves less. No, we embrace the fact that we are made in the image of God and that there is dignity given to us. And so we celebrate all of that when we love ourselves, but we are called to love God first and foremost and to, then to love others and then self. But since the fall in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve gave into the temptation to put their needs and desires before God, self before others has been our default setting. It's what Augustine calls disorder love. And there's nothing wrong with pursuing personal success, pleasure, comfort, and security, for example. But when you make these good things into God things, the ultimate things you pursue and you live for, it results in exhaustion or emptiness. Several months ago, I received a phone call from a friend of mine I haven't talked with this guy for many months, many years, in fact. And he began to tell me of the ways that God has been working in his life. I'm Facebook friends with him, so I sort of have a window into what he's been doing in the past 10 years or so. And he said, you know, recently I've been reminded that I have nothing, God, nothing apart from God, and that he is all that I need. And he began to explain. And I had no idea how successful he was in the world of dentistry, But I was informed that he was an assistant professor at Columbia University. His research was published in many of the journals. And uh, once he started his practice, I mean, it really took off. He made so much money. And with that power and influence in his city, he said that he withheld nothing. Nothing. Whatever he wanted, he got. And uh, his lifestyle, at least on Facebook, reflected that. And uh, even at the height of all of this, as he was living life, partying with rock stars, celebrities, he said he couldn't silence the nagging heart. He would come home from a crazy night of partying with all these weird people doing all kinds of stuff, And he would be left alone with himself. And he began to realize that there has to be more than this. His conclusion sounds a lot like the words spoken a long ago. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything apart from God is meaningless. And maybe for some of you... You're in Washington, D.C., because you have set your heart on personal success, pleasure, comfort, security. And this was the best piece of advice you received. And you're here because you know that these things hold the key to true fulfillment. But I think you also know how the movie ends, don't you? I'm willing to bet you can't silence the nagging heart. Either, The Bible offers a better way. The Bible says, self before others is meaningless. It leads to emptiness. But self for others is meaningful and rewarding. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, addresses this very point. In particular, how we ought to put others before ourselves in the context of a local church so that together we can pursue the calling of, that Christ has given to us. So let's dive right in first. let's talk about our commitment, our commitment. In chapter four, Paul pivots from theology to ethics, and he begins with a word of exaltation: "I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called." What exactly does Paul mean by calling? Paul says our calling is nothing less than to be participants in God's purpose of redeeming all humanity and the created universe. It is not simply our happiness or even holiness, but it's the redemption of all things, all creation. He says back in chapter 1, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's plan to which you and I have been called to participate in the work of uniting all things to Christ. And Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8, 19, and 21, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I want you to note the universal scope of God's plan. That God sets his heart on redeeming all things, and it makes perfect sense because sin has its hand in all things. And as far as the curse is found, God has committed himself to rest, uh, restoring his creation. To this end, God, in his infinite wisdom, ordained the church with a capital C as a primary instrument to accomplishing this work. No one church can do everything, but every church must do something. And you would think, in light of what Paul expounded on in chapters 1 through now this part of chapter 4, that he would begin to emphasize the importance of discipleship, evangelism, missions, outreach, Christian education, and so on. But he actually says, in light of our calling, we as God's people must maintain the unity of the Spirit. We don't create this unity, but we're called to maintain it. Why? Because our union with Christ is what unites us to one another in the body of Christ. And all of us here, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you share a profound and eternal connection with one another. And I know in the meantime, it could be a source of headache, but in heaven, it would be a source of worship. We will look back at the work of God in bringing us together. And we will sing hallelujah to the Lamb that was slain. To bring his people together from every tribe, tongue, and nation. To form for himself one people, one bride. And that's what Paul talks about here. In verses 4 through 6, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And the word that gets repeated there is the word one. And Paul is emphasizing the importance of our unity, and he lays for us the early, uh, early confession of faith, if you will, that emphasizes our unity in the body of Christ. And as such... We are brothers and sisters. We're family. And it behooves us, therefore, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in all humility, in all gentleness, in all patience, and perseverance. For Paul, unity is not a footnote. It is everything. Because he understands That unity is vital for the life and the mission of the church. It is vital for the life of the church because every part of the body needs to function properly in order for the body to work. And it is essential to the mission of the church because Jesus said, our love for one another in the body of Christ is the most compelling apologetics. He said, it is by our love that the world will know that he has sent us. Unity in the body of Christ is just as important today as it was when Paul first wrote these words. In a city deeply divided over race, class, and politics, a united church has a unique opportunity to showcase the goodness and the beauty of God's redemptive work. Can you imagine? Let's dream together what it would be like if we here at Grace Downtown leaned in with humility, that we were patient with one another, their shortcomings and weaknesses, that we would bear with each other's struggles and sin, even at great cost to ourselves, that we wouldn't label someone and write them off, That we would hold our tongue rather than gossip and slander about others. That we wouldn't simply push people to the margins, but we would pursue them. That we would get to know them. Just imagine what kind of witness we would have here in the city. And I think that is what Paul calls us to. You see, that's how the world works. Remember self before others. But he says, no, we are called to be self for others. To pursue unity at all costs. To maintain the unity of the Spirit. As we love one another. If unity is so vital to the health and the mission of the church, how do we maintain this unity? The answer is love. Again, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love. You see, there is a very good reason why the greatest commandment is to love God and neighbor well. There's a very good reason why Paul thinks love is the highest virtue. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And there's a reason why Apostle John says that love is true litmus test for a disciple of Christ. 1 John 4, 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this work, the work of loving one another, even at great cost to ourselves, is everything. Remember what Paul said in First Corinthians 13? He said, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, I could, in the eyes of the world, be somebody. I could possess wisdom and power and all kinds of things, but without deep love for Christ and his people. I'm useless, I am nobody, and I gain nothing. How does, then... Love helped maintain unity. Well, sin always divides, you see. And we see this from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Sin separated God from man, husband from wife, and people from creation. They were exiled from Eden. And isolation is detrimental. Eventually, it leads to death. If you're separated from God who is life, it leads to death. If you're separated from God who is peace, you would live in anxiety. If if you are separated from God who is joy, you're going to be miserable. Isolation, separation from God is our death. I don't know if you read this article uh, by Boston Globe entitled, The Biggest Threat Facing Middle-Aged Men Isn't Smoking or Obesity, It's Loneliness. Have you seen this? It's a long article uh, based on years of research. The article goes on to say, In 2015, a huge study out of uh, Brigham Young University, using data from 3.5 million people collected over 35 years, found that those who fall into the categories of loneliness, isolation, or even simply living on their own, see their risk of premature death rise 26 to 32 percent. And this article goes on to quote a study that was done by Oxford University, and I thought it was really interesting. It sort of helps us to understand the difference between men and women. The article goes on to say that women can experience this kind of intimacy and connection over a phone conversation. They could pick up a phone and, and talk to their friend or sister for an hour or two, and they could hang up. Feeling, wow, that was great. There's deep connection and intimacy. Men, on the other hand, we're we're not created that way. Wives, for those of you married, you know how this works. What are you doing? Nothing. Where are you going? I don't know. What did you eat? Something. We're just not very good at communicating over the phone. And we need this, this interaction, this contact. Otherwise, as the article goes on to say, it's not good for us. And what's true physically, it's also true spiritually. Because the Bible says we're one. We're one human being. We cannot separate the physical from the spiritual. And if it's this detrimental physically, it's going to have effects on us spiritually. And that's what the Bible has been saying all along. Sin always separates, but love... It draws others near. Love has a strong gravitational pull. And it's not because we're not being honest or real about people's shortcomings. Or even the messiness of being in community with one another. No, love names all of that, but it says, I love you no matter what. Love sees sin. It sees shortcomings. It sees our failings, and says, yeah, but come here, I love you. And it draws us into fellowship, relationship, and intimacy with one another. You see, in perfect love, there is no shame. And in perfect love, there's no judgment. In perfect love, there's no fear, because love covers over a multitude of sin. This then brings us to the practical question, how do we love one another in the body of Christ. And I would say we must commit to one another. We must commit to one another. There's a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the bulletin. I want to read it for you. I think he makes a, a very good point. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. That ideal community does exist, and we will all be a part of it when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, we're called to love one another, and we do that as we commit ourselves to each other, especially to this local church, that we would commit ourselves to this body of Christ here, to one another, so that we can, as we love one another, encourage one another, Admonish one another even, so that together we can live out the calling of redeeming all things for the glory of God. So let me just give a couple of practical suggestions before we move on to our second and final point. First, if you're not a member of the church, please become a member. The word membership is not in the Bible, but the principles are. You commit yourself to a local community of believers that gathers to worship Christ gathers to encourage one another that gathers to live out the mission commit yourself it's one thing to come and consume and check something off the box and feel good about what you did but when you jump in you come in and you get messy together that's when you're going to grow and that's where you're going to help us grow and serve alongside of us so become a member If you aren't part of a community group, I want to encourage you to do that. These are small groups that meet throughout the week in different parts of the city. And really, we gather together to study the word, to pray together, to fellowship, and to serve the city. We don't do it perfectly, but we're trying. And come. Get plugged in. Meet some people. Study the word together. Pray for one another. And help serve together. And if you can't commit to a CG for various reasons, and I know life happens, we have this new thing called Google Groups. I want you to check it out. Come. Be a part of a different events that are going on that uh, you know, we're, we're promoting, and, and you can come meet some new people. I think we're going to a baseball game at the end of this month. Okay? Come and cheer the Nats on. They need all the help they can get. Okay, But really, the goal is caring for one another deeply in this community. Why do we become a member? Why do we join a CG? Why do we come and participate? Because we want to know. And by knowing one another, we want to care deeply. And that, Paul says, is such an important part to maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And as we maintain the unity of the Spirit, Paul says, we're going to fulfill the calling, this grand calling of redemption. So how do we do it? Secondly, our hope. How do we do this? How do we love each other the way that he calls us to? Well, three things real quickly. First, we should pray. We should pray for one another. We should pray for ourselves. Right before this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul prays. He prays for the Christians in this city. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see what Paul is praying for? He is praying that we would understand the love that God has for us. Because as we comprehend and live in that love that God has for us, then and only then can we actually love one another. Loving one another is not something that we just try Harder to do. Sometimes we can't even love ourselves, let alone others. That's why we got to go pray. Pray that this community will be so moved by God's love for us. That we would not only be compelled, but we would delight in loving one another. So pray. Pray. Pray that we would be this community. Second, come to church. Come to church. Jesus gave us different people in the church. Leaders, members, with different gifts, different stories. Okay, so that we all can build up the body of Christ together. You know what Paul says in verse 11? And he gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, And this is not a comprehensive list. Christ gives his church the gift of people so that together we can equip one another for the work of ministry. What ministry? The work of loving each other well, for building up the body of Christ. And lastly, how do we do this? It's his grace for us. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ does not simply say, love each other well, good luck. No, he says, love each other well, and I will give you everything you need for that. He gives us the gift of prayer so that as we pray, that these things that we talk about will become a reality in our hearts. In a way, they would move us and compel us to walk out in faith and obedience, to love one another well. And he gives us the gift of one another to encourage each other. So when we are discouraged and even tired from trying to love one another, that we would be reminded of this calling and the hope we have in Him as we speak truth to one another, as we sing songs of hope to one another. As we do so, He gives us grace, grace that we need so that we, as God's people, can love each other well and by doing so, that we will fulfill the the calling of redeeming this city together for the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we give you thanks for your grace for us. Jesus, you give us so many gifts. The gift of prayer, the gift of this community, your word. Now the table. You have indeed given us everything we need for life and for godliness so that we can be rooted and established in your love for us. And our prayer is that we would be diligent in knowing your love for us in ways that would move and shape our hearts so that we become lovers of Christ, a community for others, we pray.